it'd be really helpful that if you do have a Bible or a Bible app, that you would have that ready at Matthew chapter 18. And there's also an outline on the back of the news as well with, with translation points in Korean and in Dinka. So if that's of help, please uh, make, make use of that. But right now, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, giver of all comfort, Lord, how we pray that this day, in the power of your Spirit, that you would shape us in Jesus' love for the most vulnerable, that you would help us to hear Jesus' warning to those who do harm, and that you would enliven us to take up Jesus' call to sacrificially love those who are in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the wake of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, I remember so vividly reading through case study after case study of values of institutions to protect some of the most vulnerable people in our society against some of the most evil, most heinous of offences. And I remember that as I read the accounts of survivors or the accounts of families or friends or other witnesses of those subjected to abuse, I remember weeping over what I read and feeling physically ill at everything on paper. So why would we talk about this today, here? Something so hard, disturbing, distressing. Distressing for those who have been directly affected, distressing for those who have experienced all manner of secondary effects, distressing for anyone who even takes a moment to consider the horror of the abuse of children, which has plagued our society at a scale that is rarely acknowledged. Why would we look at this today? Well, it's not just because we did a poll. We asked publicly what people think are the biggest belief blockers to Christianity in Australia. Uh, belief blockers that they, that, that we, would like to see addressed and considered, wrestled with. And this was one of the three significant issues that rose to the surface. That, of course, lines up with other research conducted in Australia that abuse by church leaders, but especially this type of abuse, not only hinders people from considering Christianity but of course has even driven people away from the church and in some instances, in some cases, their faith. And really, that's hardly surprising. It raises all sorts of reasonable and deeply personal questions. It's right to think, how could this sort of behaviour, how does this sort of behaviour possibly line up with the good news of Jesus? 
It's not only a question of how could people do something so abhorrent or how could people entrusted with power betray that so heinously, but how could those who supposedly follow and proclaim a God of love do such evil things only then for institutions, the church, to not only fail to prevent it or address it, but actually, in some cases, to be complicit in it. And whilst we're putting the questions out on the table, God, how could you let this happen? As Amy or Ewing wrestles with the question of where is God in all the suffering in her book by the same name, she shares in the introduction of just how deeply personal this is. She says, closer to home, as I write this, my husband and I are processing together the full extent of the abuse he experienced as a child. New discoveries about the horror of the things done to him have come to light in documents that came into our possession. It has taken us weeks to muster the emotional energy to read the pages of legal testimony in hospital reports. Because at times it is felt as if we are looking evil directly in the face. The person I share my life most closely with has been subjected to unimaginable trauma. Wondering why a loving God might allow suffering, or for that matter, where he is while we suffer, are not questions that any of us can dissect with sterilised instruments in a clean laboratory removed from outside influence or bias or personal pain. Because even as we ask these questions, we live here in this world where brutal, senseless, tragic things happen to people we love. We're looking at this topic not just because of the poll, but because it is right to ask why, because Jesus shines light into the darkest of places, because the evil of what has been done should not be hidden away, because those who've been harmed should not have the gravity of what they have been subjected to dismissed, because we long for this type of evil to be no more. That's why we're looking at this today. And as we come to Jesus' words in Matthew, one of the early accounts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, I think we are left with no doubt of what Jesus would say about this issue. As we see Jesus' love for the most vulnerable, Jesus' warning to those who do harm, and Jesus' call to sacrificially love those in need. First, we see Jesus' love for the most vulnerable. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, let's look at verse one, from verse 1 in chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
at this point in Matthew, the disciples are beginning to grasp the gravity of who Jesus really is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited king whom God had promised to send in order to rescue them. However, they don't still understand what the shape of this kingdom is going to be like. Hence, they're asking, in fact, we read in Mark's gospel, they're arguing, they're vying for position and wondering who is going to be the greatest in the hierarchy of things in this kingdom. But then admits that Jesus does something extraordinarily surprising. He does something surprising as he takes and welcomes a little child over to stand amongst them and says that in his kingdom, the criteria of greatness is upside down. That greatness is like this child. In fact, it says to be part of the kingdom, you need to change to become like a child. And so we hear that true greatness is not based on your power, achievement, status, or your resources, but true greatness is humble, taking the lowest place, not relying on one's own strength. This would have totally baffled those who were listening, those who were present, because whilst in our culture we recognise or like to think that we think that children are important, in the ancient world, children were seen as unimportant. They were powerless, they had no economic resources, they were vulnerable and they depended on you. They couldn't work, they couldn't fight, lead, and they didn't have worldly wisdom. And so in the ancient world, they counted for little. And if you were a girl in the ancient world, then you were particularly in danger. As Tom Wright, one biblical scholar, puts it, for newborn girls were often simply thrown away, left to starve or be eaten by predators or sold for prostitution at an early age because the family didn't want another expensive daughter to bring up. They thought that children, along with all who were vulnerable, were of no worth that they could be discarded and that the powerful could, could do with them so however they pleased. But Jesus, in a moment, turns that on its head and says, no way. You think that these are the least, but this is what greatness looks like. As we hear all that and think about the ancient world, that might cause us to think, I am so thankful that we are not like those ancient people. Yet it is painfully evident that mistreatment of children and the vulnerable is not just an ancient problem. In an article by World Vision on some of the biggest needs for children in the world today, today and how we can prayerfully come alongside the work to alleviate and address systematic poverty and justice, they said that the way that we can pray for day, today for children, is for the eradication of child exploitation, for safety for children working in hazardous conditions, and an end to child labour, human trafficking, and child marriage. That's today. This is not just an ancient problem. These are not just isolated incidents. We live in a world in which the vulnerable, especially children, are often hurt. 
when the very qualities that we are meant to learn from children for our relationship with God, of their trust and dependence, when those qualities have been heinously betrayed and used against them. Too often we read that those who've been subjected to abuse are so often to be made to feel like nothing by the perpetrators of harm, but also by those who do not take their claims seriously. We also know from the testimony of survivors that not only do survivors often feel like their worth and their dignity has been stripped away, but horrifically, perpetrators sometimes have even tried to spiritually justify their action. That's abhorrent. It's, it's completely sickening. My heart breaks for anyone who has had that experience. And I am so sorry. It's no wonder that those who have experienced or witnessed such harm would simply conclude that God does not care for them, that Christianity is just corrupt. But as we look to Jesus, we see that this type of harm is evil. It's the opposite of Jesus' love for the most vulnerable. The earliest of Christians were so compelled by this. They were so compelled of, of Jesus' extraordinary love for the most vulnerable in their world that one of the very first things that they quickly became known for throughout the ancient world was not for the grasping of power, but for the rescuing of babies and children who had been abandoned. We should emulate Jesus' love for the most vulnerable. And to those who co-opt the vulnerable to harm them, Jesus issues a dire warning. That's the second thing we see. Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I don't think Jesus could be any clearer. Acting against a little child will bring severe punishment. It's likely here, as Jesus now says, little ones, that he's not just speaking about children, but he's actually expanded the category to all who are vulnerable, all who are considered least in our society and world. And when Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble... Let's be clear, he is not in any way placing blame on the child or the vulnerable person. He is not victim-blaming. He's not suggesting that they have done anything wrong. Now, that might seem like a really obvious thing to say, but it's so critical to say it because we know from research and testimony that so often those who have been subjected to abuse are often made to feel that they are the cause, that they are the ones who have done something wrong. That is so tragic and heartbreaking. It's sometimes one of the reasons that people don't ask for help or think they don't deserve help or that they can't speak up. And I just want to be crystal clear. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, I don't think he could speak any clearer on where 
The fault lies. It's on the one who causes or enables the harm. And so he issues a stark warning. Jesus says, It'd be better for them to be taken out on a boat, far out to sea, with a large millstone around their neck, so that they can sink to the deepest part. This is a graphic image. Millstones were circular uh, stones with a central hole that would be connected to a mechanism, a contraption, in order to, to grind corn or something like that. Large millstones, like the one referred to here by Jesus, could weigh up to a couple of tons, and they need to be pulled by a large animal, like a donkey or something like that. Feel the weight of Jesus' words. Harm against the most vulnerable is completely abhorrent. Jesus isn't saying that this is how we should rush off and enact justice or something like that. He's issuing the warning that so severe is the punishment that awaits those who do harm to the vulnerable that it would be better for them to be taken off and dropped in the ocean. That should leave us with no doubt about what Jesus thinks about abuse. It's evil. But it also should give us confidence that justice will be done. That doesn't mean that there isn't earthly consequences or justice right now, although so often people subjected to abuse are robbed of justice for a variety of reasons. This is an assurance that God is not indifferent to the horrors of abuse or indeed any sin, and there will be a day when justice will be done. Jesus is not revelling in the punishment, but warning of it. Hence, when he goes on to say, and in some ways more broadly about sin, that if our hand causes us to stumble to sin, we should cut it off, or our eye causes us to stumble, we should gouge it out, for it's better to enter life that is the kingdom of God maimed rather than not at all. He's not saying literally we should go off and do that. But he's saying that it needs to be dealt with. There will be divine justice that cannot be escaped. And therefore, what is required is a willingness to admit wrongdoing and turn from it. It's about repentance. There's both an individual and a corporate dynamic to that. Of course, individually, there should be a genuine admission of wrongdoing. But corporately, institutions must repent of their part in these heinous things. Institutions have so often got that wrong. They haven't been willing to recognise the wrongdoing. Sometimes they've even covered up the wrongdoing. Those who have come forward have often been dismissed or diminished. Not so with Jesus. If we take Jesus' warning seriously, we will be quick to grieve, lament and confess our failures and to plunge them into God's grace in order that we can be communities who will not tolerate such harm, communities shaped by the protection of the most vulnerable, and communities committed to helping in order that by God's grace, that harm may give way to healing. That would be communities shaped by the way of Jesus. Finally, we see Jesus' call to sacrificially love those in need. Verse 10. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. When we hear Jesus called don't despise one of these little ones, that might sound like a very low bar. But Jesus is not saying as long as you don't hate or harm the most vulnerable, then that's sufficient, then that's okay. He's saying stop looking down on them because that's not how God sees the vulnerable. That's the point in the reference to the angels. Now, there is plenty of debate about the finer implications and details of what their angels in heaven means, but, but the point is, whilst the hurt and harm are so often looked down on, not seen or pushed aside, God does see us. Jesus does see you. Don't look down on the most vulnerable. Verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's the most wonderful reassurance to the vulnerable and it is a challenge to us all. Jesus calls us to sacrificially love those who are most in need, to welcome, to show hospitality. We see that time and time again throughout the Gospels. We see it all throughout the Bible. And the image here, the standard of how we are to pour out that love is to reflect the love of the one, our good shepherd, who went to the furthest extent to bring us home. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The shepherd, the shepherd is the one who, who goes out of the way, whatever the cost. The shepherd, in whose steps we are meant to follow, is Jesus. When Jesus says he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99, he's not saying that he doesn't care for the 99 or anything like that. He's saying how he longs to be reunited with that one. His, his heart breaks at the evil action of others that causes people to turn away from him. It's completely understandable. That's how people sometimes respond. Why would anyone trust God with their love when those who stand in his name have not welcomed or loved actually done them harm what sort of evidence do we have that as we put our trust in God and become his children that he won't take our vulnerability and then use it as a weapon against us as others have what what sort of evidence do we have that God is worthy of our trust we have the evidence of the cross that's why we can trust Jesus with our love. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who has done everything to bring us home. At the cross, we see that the greatest of all became the least of all. See, Jesus doesn't use his power to take advantage of the most vulnerable. No, he gave up his power to take all the pain, all the suffering and all of the evil of the world on himself. That's why 
we can trust him. Jesus leaves us with no doubt about what he thinks about harm done in his name. It breaks my heart and I'm so sorry. Where there have been failures, we must do everything we can to shine a light on it. We must do everything in our power to protect and love the most vulnerable. That work, that work will continue until the very day that the Lord Jesus returns. But Jesus also leaves us with no doubt that when we come to him with our sorrow, our pain and our hurt, he welcomes us as his children in the security of his forever love. Let's pray. Gracious God, how we thank you that we can come to you with our, our questions, with our pain, with our anger, our lament, and our frustrations. Lord, how we thank you that, that you welcome us to come to you. Lord, as we look upon the horrors of abuse, how our hearts cry out in pain, Lord, we are so sorry for the ways in which institutions, society, our part in that have enabled these things for too long. Lord, how we pray that you would be at work in the power of your spirit, shaping communities everywhere to love and care for the most vulnerable according to the standard of Jesus' sacrificial love. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed both the God of justice and mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that whilst we wait for justice to be done, that we would know your grace and your healing in our own lives. Lord, I particularly pray for anyone here today in person or joining us online for whom the pain of this is so close. Lord, I pray how they would know your love and your comfort, the security of all the gifts that you bring, even amidst our enormous pain. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us the evidence that we need in the cross to know that as we come to you and place our trust in you, as we are laid bare with vulnerability before you, that you will not betray that trust, but you are worthy of it as you call us your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.